actually a continuation on the word peace. You see it in my title, Powerless Today, Yet at Peace. And most people would put that in a, what we would call an oxymoron expression. You can't be powerless and still be at peace. Um, you, you can't be at peace and not have your questions answered, as Rob addressed last week. And can I just tell you something? Uh, we, didn't, we didn't powwow to make sure these messages fit. This is the Holy Spirit doing this, and he does it all the time. The worship that we sing, I hear about it. Uh, sometimes I have input to it, but most of the time I show up, and I'm enjoying it fresh like you are. And, and I'm amazed how often it's like relevant city. I mean, it touches my heart. It, it matters. So, um, but I, I'm thinking about, you know, powerless yet at peace. And that, that's my title this morning. So I want to start by asking you a question that's not a comfortable one for you to answer. It's way easier to ask. But here's the question. What do you do when you're not in control? Cry. Sure, it's maybe tears of frustration, tears of fear. Um, cry out, call out to God. It's, I mean, um, I'm not hearing anybody push back on my, my sentence. What do you do when you're not in control? I'm not, I haven't heard anybody say, but I'm always in control, dude. You know, rebuke you, you know. No. Uh, the fact is, we know what it's like to not be in control. Uh, the feeling comes usually with a disquieting development. Um, and it happens almost without exception, without notice. It's kind of another way of saying you're on a stroll with your sweetheart walking down the beach and suddenly in Oregon, and you don't even remember turning your back on the ocean because we're warned again and again, don't do that. But suddenly what happens? What is that wave called? A sneaker wave. And it's almost like it sees a target on you and just comes straight at you. Everybody else is standing, but you are flattened. Okay? That's a disquieting development. And the very word sneaker wave mean you didn't see it coming. You had no notice. No one called you ahead of time and said, hey, bro, be careful at about 9.30 this morning uh, at Cannon Beach. There's going to be a big wave. No. Life doesn't work that way. Um, you find yourself looking in that moment for and hoping to find a way forward out of this churning sea that has flattened you but you, you don't find anything. It's, it's unending, if you will. I'll use the word uh, because I think it fits. You, you feel stuck. And you feel, um, you feel helpless as well in that, in that moment. And for many, um, in many ways, you then almost feel like you are, have become a prisoner of your own circumstances or situation. It's like, who cares how I got into this? I'm stuck. I can't get out of it. Uh, 
I'll bet uh, all of us could point to illustrations, past and present, where we were face-to-face with, uh, with our powerlessness. Big word, but a good word. I'll bet we can. Uh, I don't uh, rarely ask a question of you that I haven't thought through myself. Those past and present situations that I feel powerless to fix, to change. Um, I won't ever forget, 22 years ago now, this month, this last month, when uh, Debbie and I took our youngest daughter to um, a hospital and she was uh, rolled out on a gurney into the pediatric cardiac surgery room and the unit. And, um, and, and she was, as a five-year-old, facing heart surgery, needed heart surgery, something she was born with. And I remember the moment that she rolled away from us, it was, <clears throat> it was a lump in the throat then, it was more than that then, it still is now, because I, I remember the dad in me saying, I'm her protector, and the mom and Debbie, same thing. We, don't, we would never let that happen, and, and yet it had to happen. And I remember that day like it, like it was this moment, and, and, it, and it marked my life as a powerless moment for me. One man came and sort of delivered me from that moment because I'm trying to be a pastor at the same time I'm a panicked father. And uh, he came and put his arm around me and he says, hey, you're my pastor, but today you're a father. Be a dad. And uh, it's his fault I fell apart at that moment. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was, it was tough. And I will never forget, it's only two years ago now, but on June 10th, 2021, uh, my Debbie was diagnosed with uh, AML and acute myeloid leukemia. And the A part is acute. It means you didn't see it coming. It means it was in every way a sneaker wave. You and... We were living a normal life, and this uninvited and unexpected intruder came, and it, um, it, it's, uh, it's acute for another reason. It, it requires immediate intervention because it's a very aggressive form of leukemia, and, it, and they did. They intervened aggressively. Um, and the whole intervention lasted a year and a half, and it, uh, about a year, a little over a year. And it, and it involved 63 nights in the hospital and 25 blood and platelet transfusions. That's an easy sentence to tell you, but it was a powerless feeling. And I'll use words to describe me, uh, a helpless feeling. Um, Many of you, many people we know said, where can I give my blood? Can she take direct transfusion? And I'm like, well, you know, we got to, there's some tests, there's some, <laughs> there's some things, but yes, give, give, give donations to the Red Cross. Um, so, because we all felt like, what can I do? You know, even Debbie felt, what can I do? And it, and it really, we were powerless again, and, and it was hard again. 
Um, I want to give you just a suggestion, then we're going to move into the text. I'm certain everybody hearing my voice this morning in this room and in other rooms uh, has a heart surgery or AML, a leukemia experience. You may call it a different name. It, It was nonetheless a sudden and unexpected development that that really hits you hard and left you feeling helpless and in some cases totally powerless to change anything going on around you. And if that's your story, would you do me a favor? Actually, do yourself a favor. I'm going to go home. This is, they call it in psychological circles. This is cathartic for me because I get to share with you something I went through and I feel better, only you feel worse. Sorry. Uh, Maybe not. Hopefully you don't. But here's the deal. Everybody has something like that. And that's why we need each other. That's why uh, just taking in a message or a song uh, live stream is okay, but it's not enough. You need deeper things. You need somebody in a life group or in a conversation today at lunch or in cafe that says to you, wow, tell me your Tell me your powerless surgery or situation, okay? Would you do that? Would you, you don't have to raise your hand and promise, but would you, would you see what it does for you and for the person that you're, that you're sharing it with? J, uh, Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Two verses later, it says, and let each man and woman bear their own load. It means... Don't, don't become this drain that just hangs on to everybody and shares the story again and again. But be engaged in a relationship that says, wow, that's huge. And, and mine's huge. We have something in common. And we're both interested, as my title says, in, uh, in peace. So, okay, that's enough of an assignment. Right at uh, this moment, you may be mostly, I understand, I get it, in a stable, fairly secure, fairly settled place. And you may be right now quite different than what I just described. You might be very much in control, and that's good. Um, And I like it because when things happen according to plan, I feel in control, right? You know, remember the A-team? Anybody going to admit they watched the A-team? Back in the 40s, I think it was. I forget when it was. No, it was a great show. And, and, and remember their line? I love it when a plan comes together. Who doesn't love it when a plan comes together? Um, but you and I don't have to live long to feel powerless. And, um, and, and the reality is we're probably powerless to even face some unknown developments that are yet to be discovered. Uh, Swindoll has uncomfortably noted, and I'm quoting, in truth we are powerless. So may I use that as a, a correction for you if you're sitting here going, "That's I don't struggle with what he's talking about. Yes, Swindoll is on my side. So in truth we are powerless and we always have been powerless. Our well-being is like a piece of dust in a whirlwind. Not very secure. 
So as a result, to avoid living, he continues, in constant terror, like when's the next shoe going to fall, we construct an elaborate illusion that says we control our own destinies. You always say it with a, I got it. And that look of crazed, I'm going to do it. And some circumstances, um, until some circumstances bring us back to reality. And what is that reality? The reality is what we've been saying. We aren't in control after all. So, speaking of reality, how we view God when our situation is out of control is of utmost importance. There's a lot of people in our world that have concluded God is, in fact, dead. He could fix this. He could have caused that wave to miss me. But he didn't. And uh, Rob did a great job describing some things, and he did it honestly. Things that we all kind of went, what? Tsunami that kills a quarter of a million people, what? Okay. Um, a good start is to realize that God has never, we write this down, never been taken by surprise. I like to say it plainly because I have a background with youth. God has never been heard to say, oops. They get that, except maybe the day he created cats. But anyway, I move on. So, um, nor, listen to me now, nor is God incapable of handling anything that comes our way. Uh, shaped by his clearly established sovereignty, and I'm quoting now, he is, as my friend Glenn Sexton likes to say, the blessed controller of all things. So why is it the word blessed grabs me and pulls me in gently? Because if you say control, it's, it's like God going, I've got control, get out of here, step off. But this is a blessed God that says, I've got it. I've got it. Jeremiah understood this. Who can speak and have it happen the words will be on the screen for you. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Jeremiah, or Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37. I don't know if it's up there yet. Not yet, okay. Um, can I answer the question? Jeremiah's asking a question. By the way, he's asking it in Lamentation. After the city has been burned down, the wall is down, the temple is smoke and ashes. Okay? And in Lamentations chapter 3, he says, he asks the question, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? I'll give you the answer. The right answer is no one. Continuing from there, Daniel has a great grasp of God's control of life's events when he expressed this, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. I'm quoting from Daniel chapter 2. He controls the course of world events. How timely are those words today? I pause because I've got to process what I just said. I'm like, whoa. 
He removes kings and he sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies where we can't see it in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. That's a God that is gloriously the blessed controller of all things. Sovereign God. Amen. Amen. Would you turn to Acts chapter 23 where we left off? Today as we resume our study, um, it's a study that's lasted over a year and it's coming to a close. Unless I press rewind or repeat and we start over. (laughs) Kidding. That was a joke. You should have laughed, but you didn't. Okay, chapter 23. Uh, We've called it In Step with the Spirit, the series. Acts of the Apostles, or as we've reverently uh, noted, Acts of the Holy Spirit, because he came in chapter 2, and he's uh, at times very visibly affecting and influencing the outcome of this narrative. And um, we will witness today how our sovereign God sustained the Apostle Paul, who faced a very uncertain outcome, and he sustained him with his peace. All right, that's the takeaway. Uh, So Paul is fresh uh, from his trial that, frankly, did not turn out well. The apostle was remanded because it turned out so poorly. He was remanded to protective custody. Look at verse 10 of chapter 23. He was, uh, the dispute of Paul defending himself became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be such a graphic picture, torn to pieces by those opposed to him. And so he ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them by force and bring him into a safe place. That's what the barracks were. Okay, he was, he was, he was, this was a very divided group. And while in the barracks, he enjoyed peace and safety, right? Well, until it's learned that there is a conspiracy underway, um, a death squad conspiracy that's discovered by his nephew, Paul's nephew. And the nephew uh, comes to his uncle, Paul, in this barracks and says, hey, there's some guys waiting. And as soon as you're released from here, um, they're going to they're gonna jump you. Ambush was the word. And they're going to kill you. Their mission. In fact, they've taken a vow, a strict vow that says we won't eat or drink until we have accomplished this seditious purpose. So his nephew reports all of that in chapter 23, and it's, it's fascinating. It moves very quickly from chapter, verse 16. Paul's nephew comes, finds this out, reports it all to the commander, and he took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, verse 19. What's, what's this you want me to, to know? And And he tells him. And then verse 22, the commander dismisses the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. I want you to see verse 23 because it's a not only a pivoted pivot point in this near narrative, but hear me now, it is a pivot to the end of Acts. Verse 23. Now let your eyes go on your page as I read it. Then he called two, that is the commander, called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers. 
70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea. That's a, about a 65, 70-mile trek west and north on the Mediterranean Sea in a very volatile place right now. He says, get these groups together. If you're doing the math quickly, some of you do. It's about 470 military men to escort Paul. That's how serious he took the threat against Paul's life. These guys are going to kill him. And so he gathers up these men, and, and it comes down to three words at the end of verse 23. He gathers all these people to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. The Apostle Paul, the great evangelist to Jews and Gentiles who traveled freely everywhere, telling people about the Jesus that Paul had met and who changed his life was for the very first time and it would remain so no longer free. You do not see freedom again from here to the end of Acts. Verse 9 at 9 or verse 23 at 9 p.m. everything changed so that he was no longer to go to whomever and wherever he felt the Holy Spirit directing him to go. If you need proof of that, look back at chapter 16, and you'll see several times where Paul wanted to go to Asia, and the Holy Spirit said, no, go to Europe. Asia later, not, not now. That's a big... But from this point on, humanly speaking, Paul would never be free to go where ever the Holy Spirit directed him. Here's, here's the whole truth. I want you to write this down. Paul was, verse 23 at 9 p.m., Paul was, in fact, powerless and helpless, yet at quiet peace. Let's read on. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix, who lived in Caesarea. He wrote a letter as follows, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they, they were accusing him, so I brought him in to their Sanhedrin, that leadership council. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, the Torah, the Jewish law. But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. That, is, that would be a Roman charge. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night, starting at 9 p.m., we read that already, and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. 
So a bunch of them headed back home to Jerusalem. The rest continued with Paul uh, to Caesarea. When they, the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province Paul was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, Okay, okie doke. I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul run freely and have a good time. No, here it is. That he be ordered, they ordered Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. By the way, when it says go down, they're going from the hill, Jerusalem, going down, heading to the coast and north. And they brought their charges against Paul before Felix, the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. Quote, we've enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. What a setup. I mean, this guy's good. He is a lawyer, and, and his mission was to win the hearing. That's what lawyers do. But in order not to weary you further, I broke the quote back into it, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, to stir up riots among the Jews all over the world, and he's a ringleader of this Nazarene sect, and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him you, you yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about these charges we are bringing against him. And today we're going to finish at verse 9. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were in fact true. Okay. So, Felix reads the letter. Um, there is a statement that makes that begins verse or chapter 24 that I want to focus on the rest of our time, about five minutes. Okay? So look back at verse 24. Five days later, this is Paul, chapter 23 ends, under guard in Herod's, Herod's palace. Very secure location. Chapter 24, verse 1 says, five days went by. And the high priest came to Caesarea to bring their charges against Paul to Felix, the governor. Uh, question. Have you ever been in a foreboding situation? Let me define that. It's where you find yourself seized by fearful apprehension. Maybe it was a trial for you. Um, maybe it was a situation. You knew it was coming. There's no surprise here. You knew it was coming. Like Paul, he, had, he, he, he didn't have a watch, but he could have kept the watch and gone, oh, man, 
Another day, they're not here yet. Another day, they're not here yet. Maybe, maybe something's come up. There's five days of this, five 24s. It's a foreboding situation, uh, fearful apprehension. It's where you actually in the moment, if you put yourself there, you begin to fight panic attacks over the possibilities and the possible outcome. If you're struggling to remember, I'll give you a couple from my childhood. Um, actually, I won't give you two. I'll just tell you that there was a long season in high school where I had various run-ins with the principal um, and other teachers, as it turned out. One time they amb ambushed me. All of them showed up in a parent meeting. Uh, I know that was, that was not fair at all, but anyway... Uh, they did, and they asked the simple question of all my teachers. How, I thinking it was just the one teacher that had me kicked out of school, but it was all seven of them showed up, and they said, "How's Steve doing in your class?" And um, I, you know, how how is his behavior? How's I mean, performance and behavior? And they said, "Well, you know, he, he's doing the work. He he can get the stuff done, but boy, he talks a lot, and he's very distracting." And uh, very hard to have in class. Some of you are teachers and you're going, well, that is, he's connecting all kinds of dots for me right now. I get that. Um, but I was, I was, uh, when, when the meeting adjourned, when it was over, and my dad's parting words were, we will deal with you at home. <laughs> uh, I had a foreboding apprehension, Right? And it wasn't five days, it was a few hours, but there was this fearful apprehension. Not my dad was, didn't throw things and he didn't, you know, he, but it, he was bad. And I know this wasn't going to go well. Um, I'm going to use the word trepidation to, to describe that moment. And it's where your mouth goes dry and your, your knees start to knock and and. You're in, you're in a spot. Your heart is racing, and you desperately search the room for an exit. That's, that's what I mean by foreboding. So I bring that up for um, two reasons. First, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Please tell me at cafe today you weren't the only one, okay? Uh, but I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one to have lived through such a moment. But secondly... This is huge. There is not a single hint of suggestion clear to the end of Acts that Paul's mouth was dry or his knees were knocking and not a single shred. You've got to make it up to find a shred of fearful apprehension from chapter 24, verse 2, to chapter 28, verse 31. Remember what I said? He's in shackles. Probably not, but it helps you understand you can't go anywhere. You're powerless. That's his situation. A very undesirable situation for the rest of the book. The one fact that a court reporter, if they had taken notes and released those notes to the public, one thing they would most likely all agree on is that though Paul was powerless and helpless 
to effect a favorable outcome. Let it, be, let it be noted, he was completely at peace. We got a choice to make with that information. All of us do. We can do what some of us do on a regular basis. We go, that's a cool story. Wow, good for him. And it doesn't get anywhere near you. Because you're quite certain it only works in in the case of superstars. That's a possibility. You could say that. I don't believe that theology at all. But it's a possibility that that's how it... Because what do you do with your fearful apprehension? This foreboding feeling that comes with this. Um... The other possibility is that God wants to let this be your story as well. A very important man in my life for all my memory was my Uncle Bob. And uh, he was a lot like a dad and a godly man and a great husband, just a guy to, mo- to emulate, right? You know that kind of person? You go, man, I just want a scoop or two of him. And uh, I was up here, and he lived in Southern Cal. He's with Jesus face-to-face and hanging with my dad, so it's cool. But um, he, uh, he was about to have a very, very serious open-heart surgery, uh, one of many. He had different strokes and heart attacks, things like that. He was about to have that, and I called him. I'm not sure how he, he had a cell phone access in the pre-op room. But I called him, and I said, Uncle Bob, I love you, and I'm calling to tell you that God is your refuge and your strength, your constant companion in this time of trouble. Now, this is just a phone. It wasn't a FaceTime, just a phone. And apparently, his look got the attention of nurses all gowned up, ready to go in pre-op, and they came over to him. One in particular came over to Uncle Bob and said, Sir, I'm, she's looking at his chart, you know, flipping the page. And she goes, Sir, I see that there's a very serious surgery ahead for you. And I'm trying to reconcile that. She had had a hint earlier. She knew where they were going. I'm trying to reconcile that with this. Where you're, you've got a grin from ear to ear. You are full of joy. We give people powerful medicines at this moment. Have you ever had one of those to calm you down? I had carpal tunnel. That's sissy surgery. I had that done on my wrist, and I, I'm like, give me a double dose, doc. <laughs> calm me down. She says to Uncle Bob, how come this when you're facing this? And he looked at her and reached for her hand. Because God is my refuge and my strength, my constant companion in times of trouble. And she said, I knew it. I knew it. She didn't know Uncle Bob. She just knew Christians like you who are up against it. Like Paul. Not going to go free. And he had peace in the midst of all of that. Um, 
I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy right away, and I want to stay that guy every day. If this opening statement was any indicator um, that verse 9, I, I find verse 9 is where we left off today. It's important for this reason. The opening argument was just made by Tertullus, right? We just read that. And then the crowd weighed in. We're not told what verse 9, what the content of verse 9 was. But it's this crowd that says, yeah, 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 for sure. He said, dude, he's a troublemaker. He's causing problems. He's a ringleader. He's a, he, he desecrates our temple. He's troublemaker, troublemaker, troublemaker. And Paul's standing there hearing all this. That's why verse 9, I, I raised my voice telling you about verse 9 because my eyes could see that moment where you're damned, very damning kinds of things presented. And if that opening statement was an indicator, Paul's path from this point on was not going to be easy and was not going to go well. To stand trial, he knew, he knew he would not, it would not lead to his freedom. It would, in fact, slowly and exorably lead to Rome. Someone said, Paul knew that he was not in control of his future, but thankfully, neither were these powerful people. Whoa. Paul points to his secret. It's what you're wondering right now. How do you do that? He points to his secret of peace in powerless situations. In a letter that he wrote many, many years later, and he was describing a um, painful problem that he faced. I find it curious he never tells details. He simply says it hurt, and it hurt bad enough to ask repeatedly for God to remove it. And I, and I cried out to God, and I asked him, and then I asked him again. How many have repeatedly asked God to re remove something, to fix something, to change this road you're on? Sure you have, yeah. So he called it a thorn in his flesh. Um, it was something that would be ongoing for the rest of his life, presumably. And it would be, I'm going to suggest, it would be the undoing for many people but not for Paul. In his own words, here's why. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me. Generally thought of as a uh, reference to repetition, not necessarily three times. There's once, there's twice. There, no, this was an ongoing, Lord, help. Take this, remove this, change this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Listen very carefully for a preposition word. It's the smallest preposition word. For my, my power, still quoting, is made perfect in your weakness. The power of in, I am. I almost changed my title to that. 
That was God's statement to them. My power is made perfect in. Not when you get through this. That'll be true too. But now, in it. In the powerless situation you find yourself. Paul then had resolve, apparently, because he says next, this is all 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to 10. Therefore also, therefore also, Paul's response, I will gladly boast about my weakness. I will boast in my distresses. I will boast in my persecutions for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's what I want to be. And I am sure most of us, maybe all of us want that too. Would you bow with me? And remember as you do Jesus' words to the troubled hearts of his disciples. Um, they're perfectly fit for hearts of people in this place today. They have, they're timeless words. He said, I've told you these things that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulations and difficulties, situations that make you feel powerless and helpless. But take courage. I've overcome the world. So Jesus is where we get the source, the resource we need to do what we've talked about today. Paul is an example, but now it's your turn, my turn. I want to be that person who's powerless yet at peace, Lord. And I know the source of all of that is you. Make me the man that can praise you in the pain. And say with conviction and honesty, it is well with my soul.